which she found unbearably ostentatious. The apartment was dripping marble and had other aesthetic features Olivia hated. She said, I mean, we're doing our best with our clutter and junk to like take the majesty and grandeur out of it. But when I come home, I feel like this isn't me, you know? This doesn't reflect who I feel like I am in the world and who I want to be in the world. In the renovation, Olivia had planned to change the aesthetic elements that bothered her, but expensive, unexpected structural problems ate up the money they had allocated, and Scott had balked at shelling out another million or so. Olivia told me, We could have spent it. He just didn't... Psychologically, he didn't want to. And I didn't either. But I also really didn't want to live with it the way it was. The conflict that ensued was, as Olivia described it, traumatizing, destabilizing their marriage, and it resulted in their not doing anything to their new home for over two years. Olivia said that the renovation conflict was a fight about a lot of things, but at root, I think it was about money and what is okay to spend or not spend. Their struggle was also partly about the visibility of their wealth, as their discomfort with the aesthetics of the apartment shows. As Scott noted, standing out had been a sore spot for him since his childhood. Olivia elaborated on this issue in talking about the opulence of her home vis-a-vis -vis those of their peers and friends, whom she described as normal. She said, I always feel a certain level of awkwardness about having people over, especially people, I mean, we don't hang out in society circles. In society circles, I don't think our apartment would be that exciting. We hang out with more normal people. And so even having kids' friends over, there's always this, like, inner hurdle that I have to get over. She was still so uneasy with the fact that they lived in a penthouse that she had asked the post office to change their mailing address so it would include the floor number instead of PH, a term she found elite and snobby. Not surprisingly, neither invited me to their home. I talked with Scott in his office and with Olivia in mine. But their discomfort was not just about how their consumption choices would look to others. It was also about how to set a limit on spending when there was, essentially, no objective ceiling, and what that limit meant about what kind of people they were. Scott said it had taken them nearly two years to buy an air conditioner when they first moved to New York. He said that kind of decision typifies us. He continued, We have to feel like we're doing it the hard way. I mean, the way we shop, the way we do our sort of like family stuff. And, you know, the way life works is we do normal Joe everyday stuff. We ride trains. You know, for some reason, it's important for us to feel that way. He described creating these discomforts as the mental trick I have to play in a way to be okay with having so much and coming from so little. Yet Scott and Olivia seemed to be growing more comfortable with their lifestyle over time. Olivia told me their annual spending had reached $800,000, up from $600,000 a few years before. She had a new attitude about the apartment, saying, If we're going to live there, like, let's really live there. Let's really kind of embrace it and not try to pretend like we don't live there in a funny sort of way by not getting the door fixed. You know, we had a broken closet door for the whole time we lived in our old apartment. So there's some, like, little mental game, again, about keeping it just a little bit uncomfortable. You know, we're here, but we're not really here kind of thing. So that's finally starting to wear off. I'm kind of getting really tired of doing that. She was even planning to embark on another renovation.
Scott and Olivia are two of the 50 affluent and wealthy New York parents I interviewed for this book, who ranged from Wall Street financiers and corporate lawyers to professors and artists with inherited wealth. In talking with these people, I initially wanted to know how privileged New Yorkers made choices about consumption and lifestyle. That is, how people who had economic freedom decided what was worth spending money on. How did they make decisions about buying and renovating a home, placing children in school, hiring domestic workers, and using their leisure time? What counted as real needs versus luxuries? These questions mattered because they were related to a broader issue. How people who were benefiting from rising economic inequality experienced their own social advantages. Did they think of themselves as having more than others? If so, did this self-conception affect the life choices they made? What might these decisions and discourses have to